Let's pray together. God, we want to posture ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our souls this morning to hear and receive from you. Thank you already for this amazing time of worship, for words expressed for us, but also words we participated in, words of confessing who you are, which is the whole reason we're here. And Lord, we ask that you would speak, that you would reveal your truth in your word from Jonah and his story, and allow us to see how your spirit is leading us to be people of spirit and truth this morning. I ask that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be holy and pleasing to you. Amen. The question I'd like to start off with us this morning is this. What would you do when the what will you do when the word of the Lord comes to you? Maybe you've had a time in life where you've had the word of the Lord come to you and you immediately were put in this position of how do I respond? What do I do in light of this? And Word of the Lord might seem like big terms for moments of decisive change and discernment, but they are moments of true power that I think happen in all of our stages of life. And as I was even sitting down this morning thinking, is there an example in my life of when I felt like God came to me and it changed what I did after that? And the reality is it wasn't just one. I can think back to my teenage high school years, my university years. I can think back to my single life post-university. I can think to my early dating life, my family life, job after job after job, where I had opportunity to go a different way, to not do what God wanted for me, what the purposes that he had for me, that I could have stepped away from them. And instead of those opportunities, if I look back, I can see lots of positive ones where I not only heard that word, but I was able to say yes. But Jonah's story here tells us a slightly different story. Jonah tells us a story of someone who heard the word, knew what it meant, and he went the exact opposite direction. Which, if we're honest, we are not just tempted to do, but often find ourselves doing very easily. And part of it is not just, oh, I have a specific city I'm supposed to go to. It is actually a specific call to, no, I'm called to a committed way of life. A way of life that honors Jesus and the, what Jesus has spoken over my life is truth and that I am stepping intentionally into that or I'm doing the opposite. I'm going the other way. The context for Jonah is fascinating because Jonah is a book of the prophets. Maybe it's a group that you might know as the minor prophets and it is a group of collection of prophets God has called out for people that God is speaking through to a context of these people in the Old Testament who are not following God's ways, or maybe it's speaking judgment over other peoples, but they're all in a place and time anticipating Jesus. They're trying to anticipate Christ coming and bringing hope to the world in the cross. So they have themes of judgment, but also lots of prophecy, lots of prophecy. But Jonah, it's narrative. It reads in a very tight-knit book, four chapters, and it is this cohesive story. So it's, I really will have a difficult time this morning not telling the whole story and doing justice to the story in four chapters because we don't have time to cover all the details of the story. But you can't understand the whole thing just by one chapter, to be fair. But Jonah, what I want you to know is he's kind of like the anti-hero. We have all these movies that tell us stories about anti-heroes, and it's people who are embracing some aspect of the hero but not doing it very well and doing it their own way. Because Jonah doesn't want this call, this word of the Lord coming to Jonah, not something he wants at all. 
except God is choosing him for a very specific purpose. Just like I believe that God is choosing each of you. God's chosen you for a very specific purpose. And it might be to calling you to do things that you would rather prefer he does not call you to. You, it might be things that you would prefer, you would choose, you would want to do something else. But that's not God's promises for you or purposes for you. And so part of this posture in this story is hearing and receiving through that. The first few verses tell, tell us about God's call in Jonah. God calls Jonah to proclaim truth and love. And here's the, I'm going to read the first few verses again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh, city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. The word of the Lord, it's this refrain through all the prophets. It's being used not just for prophets, but representatives of God. And what we learn later on in the book of Jonah at the very end is that once this word comes, once Nineveh is spoken, Jonah immediately wants no part in this. And it's not because the people of Nineveh are a mystery to him. He knows exactly who they are. It's the equivalent of like modern day Sin City, Vegas, or put whatever big city in your mind where anything goes in a city that is bankrupt of morality. It's just completely lost in darkness and pain and agony. He knows the city well. And as he hears God say, I want you to preach against the city, he also knows that the possible outcome of preaching God's good news to anyone, anywhere, is that God might also forgive them. And Jonah, for whatever reason, his heart is not about this. He knows this. At the very end in Jonah 4, as all the rest of the story takes place, he's beholding the city of Nineveh, and he tells God exactly why he ran away, exactly why he wanted no part of this call. And it's this. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And he is a bitter prophet at this point. He is bitter because what happens is he goes to the city of Nineveh and preaches the good news. He talks about God's love. He calls people to repentance, and they actually do it. And so the whole city is experiencing grace at this point in time, and he's bitter about it. He, he's, he, and he, and he speaks in just names. Like, I know the kind of God you are. You're, you're the kind of God who forgives. You're kind, the kind of God who loves, who embraces people, who gives mercy to people who forgive. And it, it's, it's strange to think what's going on in Jonah's mind and heart through this story. Does he, do, does he have a, a resistance to God's character? Yes. Do we oftentimes? Yes. And Sometimes I think maybe we don't have as much of resistance to God's character, but we just don't think that God is using us in the same way. That God wants us to be part of this story, and maybe not just part, central figures at times, focusing in on the care of the people, and people who actually share good news. That God actually wants to use you as part of this story. So Jonah receives the call. The next movement in verse 3 is really simple. Jonah gets out of town. He runs away. I have a few uh, pictures of maps I want to actually show if we could put it up. This is Joppa is the, is the one up here where it's like you see this is, where, this is where Jonah receives this call. Or it's the port he ends up at. He receives the word of the Lord. And instead of going to Nenema, which is up there to the right. Oh, there's something wrong here. We need to go to the next image. Sorry, this is, this is just me. This is the issue with the American stuff. <laughs> Kilometers, not miles. Sorry. Apologies for that. 
kilometers. Uh, Joppa to Nineveh is about 885 kilometers. And then to Tarshish, which Jonah tells us, um, it's well over 4,000. It's a journey that would have required almost a year, lots of different ports. Um, you know, Tarshish is known as like a Spanish colony. And so even though there's a couple different Tarshishes, it's probably the one that looks like in the map here. And in truth, you can see how opposite they are. When you make me, hear me make that claim that Jonah goes the exact opposite, I'm not exaggerating. He goes as far as he possibly can to not be part of God's plan. Anything but that, Lord. Have you ever felt that way? Anything but that. And Jonah is doing anything he can. He's not just, he's not, there's a couple things I thought in my mind. What is Jonah thinking here? Because the book of Jonah doesn't necessarily tell us everything. Is he acting as if he can get away from God's presence? As if God isn't in Tarshish or as God isn't somewhere else in the journey? Or is he doing anything he can just to not be part of God's purpose? Maybe God's going to do it anyway and he doesn't need me to do it. Or does God actually insist? Isn't that the story of Jonah that God insists that he is going to use Jonah for this purpose? Verse 3 says this, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. He headed to Tarshish. He went on, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to flee from the Lord. And other translations will say to flee from the Lord's presence, translating the Hebrew there, just to get away from God's presence, which we can't do. So then we're on this boat, if you know the story. He's on the boat with a bunch of people who aren't Hebrews, and he's asleep. Like the way Jonah relates to this moment just shocks me, that he is just so undisturbed by the fact that a massive storm comes about. The whole ship is planning. We know this scene. We've been looking at these kinds of scenes in past few weeks. The whole ship is panicking. They're praying out to their gods. They're reaching out to no avail. And then Jonah is sleeping just like Jesus was sleeping when the storm came about. Just like Jesus was sleeping. And they have to wake him up. And this is what they say in verse 8 to him. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? What people are you? And Jonah answers. He answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And just note the discrepancy of just the fact that Jonah can say this. It gives us an insight to where he actually is. He's not pretending God, he doesn't actually believe that God isn't God in this moment. He's just doing everything he can to act as if it's not true. Like in this moment when they ask him, he says, oh, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the Lord Yahweh. It's the covenant term for God's people, Yahweh. And, it's as the, and he worships this God. He uses that language of worship. He owes allegiance to this God. And yet, he's making all these decisions as if God doesn't have authority over his life. Like God doesn't have purpose in his life. And you, we, the rest of the story goes where he tells the people on the boat, no, the only way to calm the storm is just to get me out of the picture. I'm the problem. Let me be done. Let me die. <laughs> Throw me over the boat and the sea will calm. And actually, you can see the good faith of the people on the boat who don't actually know this God. At the same time, no, we're going to try to get to shore first before we throw you off or something. They actually try, but they can't get to the store. The storm gets wilder and wilder and wilder. (laughs) And so their reaction when they realize, you're the God of the heaven who made the sea and dry land. Of course, this is because of you. He controls the sea. There's no wonder. And as much as they try to get to the shore, They do what Jonah says, and they throw him over. They throw him over the board. 
These men even feared the Lord and offered sacrifices to the Lord. They, they immediately shift. It's not about all the different gods they represent in the boat. They focus on the one true God who could bring calm in the moment. And the Lord then, and this is what often gets reflected on in Jonah, even though Jonah is not just about this. Jonah doesn't die, but Jonah provides a fish. The translation is a sea monster of some kind that swallows up Jonah. And the purpose of it is that it saves Jonah. That Jonah, when he goes overboard, doesn't die, but he is saved and delivered by God. And he's saved in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Now I want to go to the next movement here. And I'm just trying to walk through the story so we feel it and sense all the dynamics of the storm, what God's doing in it, and how it's very different than what Jonah's doing. But when Jonah gets tossed over the board, I believe that he thought it was the end for him. That Jonah thought he was done. That there was no more life after him. Finally, I can be done. God's purpose for me is done. And that's not the case either because he didn't expect a, a large fish to swallow him up. And so Jonah believes that his story is done when it's not. So then what does Jonah do in the midst of the belly of the fish? All of chapter 2, which we didn't read, reflects on this. What is, how does Jonah respond in this moment? This prayer that Jonah says in chapter 2 is a prayer of lament, but it's also in a prayer where God, Jonah, for the first time in this entire book, starts to express commitment to God. He acknowledges what God's done. And I think of how I might have acted in this scenario, where I have just wallowed in misery. God, just let me go. Let me be done. This is too hard. I'm in a stinky fish, and I'm isolated from people, and I'm cut off from everything that I thought was good for my life. Why are you telling this story for my life? But that's not how Jonah responds. He expresses his commitment to the Lord. What he laments is how he did not participate in God's goodness and provision. He sees how God has seen him. I'll read a few verses just for you to experience this. But this is what he prays in this dark space, which is almost intended for us to reflect and see as death. Like he's in a space that captures death for us. Verse 1, he says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead I called, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. This is the space of lament he's in. And then he turns later in the prayer in verse 7. He says this, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to the worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I shall, I will shout, the, I, I, will, I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. What I have owed, what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah recognizes that God has been present in that storm. That God would not let him go. He would refuse to let him go his own way. Instead, bring him back to what the whole purpose of Jonah's going to Nineveh was, which is to preach the good news and love. That that is why God was calling Jonah to those people, those people over there, the other, the enemy. That that is the purpose. And even that language right there in the Old Testament, salvation comes from the Lord, is like gospel good news for the Old Testament. And salvation for me, I also use words like deliverance and rescue. That God is bringing rescue through this storm and through this life and through his commitment to his people through all time. And so Jonah repents and says, I will make good. I will join in the praise. I will follow after you. Many of you probably know the story, if I've already had to kind of signal the end, is that God provides 
rescue after three days and three nights in the fish. That he's spit out on the shore and given the word of the Lord again. And Jonah goes, he preaches the gospel, he preaches the good news. But Jonah still is expecting a different outcome. He's still expecting a different outcome. And he ends up as a bitter prophet. And the book of Jonah ends up with some odd questions. And God is essentially telling Jonah, shouldn't I show compassion to these people? Shouldn't I show mercy? Isn't this who I am? And Jesus picks this up in the Gospels as well. This is why the beautiful thing in the Old Testament is how the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ. It helps us prepare to understand some of what Jesus is saying. And it gives us context for understanding it. So one of the things that Jesus says is that the sign he'll provide to the people who don't understand him, who are lost and confused, is he'll provide them the sign of Jonah. He says this in, in Matthew and also in Luke. But one of the things he says is to people who don't understand what he's doing and the miracles he's causing, he, he's bringing about. So in Matthew chapter 12, I have a few verses here to read for you. This is what Jesus says, or it's in the Gospels, where the Pharisees and teachers are coming, the teachers of the law. They say to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answers, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So it kind of assumes you already know the story. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than then something, something greater than Jonah is here. And so what Jesus is saying is the sign of Jonah is this rescue and deliverance that happens both in the fish, but also in the mercy and grace that happens in the city. And it is forgiveness in Christ that Christ practices in going to the cross and dying and then resurrecting in three days and having new life and bringing new life to us. That is the sign of Jonah. But Jesus is also saying here is that many people are looking for a different outcome. Many people are looking for a different sign, and they might be tempted to be bitter or disappointed. They might be tempted to try to go their own way and refuse what God's doing in the world. And Jesus is saying, no, <laughs> the people of Nineveh will judge you for it. <laughs> the people of Nineveh who were the people far off, at least they repented in that moment in time, in that chance. And Jesus today gives us the chance to respond to bear witness to who God is in this new life. Because it says everything about who Christ came. Who Christ came, whether we're looking at the storm in Jonah, we're looking at the storm that Jesus himself brought his disciples through, or the storm we face now. It is adversity again, that threatens our circumstances, that threatens our sense of need and purpose. And at the same time, God says, no, I am leading through the storm. I am rescuing through the storm. The question is, do you trust me in the storm? This rescue, as I understand it, is a rescue by redirection a lot of times in our journeys. When we actually end up going the wrong direction, the wrong way, or we feel like we have the wrong role, and God says, enough. Trust me and go with me. Go with me. This is why I came, to bring this new life and possibility. This is the sign you're actually looking for. Christ came to rescue us. It's like what he says in Zacchaeus' house. When people are challenging Zacchaeus, why is he in this house? He says this, for the Son of Man came to rescue and to save the lost. That is us. 
So when I look at these passages in Scripture that have different things taking place in storms, one, I've noticed a few things, and I haven't said this too much in previous Sundays, but I want to say it here. That in storms, God stops us where we are sometimes. He gives us perspective of what's actually happening, what truth is. And he puts us in our place. Lest we forget that we're not God, that we're not Lord and Creator, God reminds us that he's Lord and Creator. And he calls us like Jonah to purposes. For Jonah, it's this purposes of truth and love. God really is saving us from ourselves. He doesn't let us go our own way beyond the point of no return. And maybe you felt like you've gotten to a place of no return. You are not there. But God's love and truth is still calling to you, welcoming you back into relationship with him. Because that's what he does. He brings people back to himself. Like the prodigal son stuck in the muck and mire of mud or a tax collector overcome by greed and guilt for taking advantage of other people or a woman who's cast out for her sins and her pain. The eunuch who was never allowed to enter the, the presence of the Lord in the temple courts. All these people and many more, just like yourself, are welcomed to be back with the Lord, but we have to be redirected sometimes. But God redirects us towards his rescue to bring us back to him to walk in step with the Spirit. So we pray different kinds of prayers. And one of the prayers that I see in Jonah 2 is this prayer for rescue and redirection. Can you think of a desperate time when you really reached out to God and prayed, asking God to, to rescue you from this difficult place you find yourself in? Well, prayers for rescue and redirection must also be prayers of surrender. To truly ask for God to save us and to deliver us means to treat him as God, <laughs> as one who actually has authority in our world and that we actually arrange our lives around that authority, around that purpose. I heard a pastor say this today and it really caught me off guard. You know, to pray something like this, don't let me be successful in my disobedience and deception. That don't, don't let me be successful in my disobedience and self-deception. Instead, to pray to humble yourself before the Lord and say things like, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts, Lord, are not my thoughts. Your ways and thoughts are higher than mine, no matter how high or great I think they are. Your ways are better, and I will surrender to them. I will submit to them that a prayer of rescue and redirection says those kind of things and says, no, God, you actually are in control of this. If I want to be a person who experiences your grace and rescue, I must surrender what I think life is supposed to be and give it all to you. I'm going to write, invite the worship team to come up as I make a next point here. Prayer for, prayers for rescue and redirection must also be prayers of surrender. But here's another one. Receiving Christ's rescue requires absolute dedication to truth and love. Truth in what God has spoken over us is good in love and how we relate to each other as people on this earth, as Christ's body, and as people who speak of what is truth and also what is love. And that means things like loving those who hate you or so different than where you find yourselves, forgiving those who you feel have wronged you. It means going to the far other side, to the hardest conversations you might have in your life, and expressing that love and compassion and empathy. Because bitterness is not better than forgiveness. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And compassion dispels any condemnation. The way of Jesus is a narrow path, but it's a harder one. But it is also higher and far better. And that is what God invites us to. Here's a quote from John Stott that I'll end with here. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. So we could be in different places in that continuum. We could, be, we could know in our hearts that we do need the truth of Christ to be strengthened in us. And the only way that it happens is for it to also be softened by love. And at the same time, we must resolve to show compassion and love to each other all days and all times. Because that's what God's done for me, and I know that's what God's done for you.